Let's open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to come uh, together this night and to uh, be encouraged to sing songs of praise to you and to uh, open your word and be taught from it. We're so thankful for all the workers and uh, the hours they spend with our kids. And we just pray, Lord, you continue to hide your word in their hearts, that you might uh, call them to yourselves and raise them up to be uh, men and women uh, who honor you uh, in this world uh, that doesn't know uh, the hope of Christ. Thank you for the privilege of uh, teaching them, and thank you for the just the hard work that everybody puts into that ministry. And Lord, I want to be mindful of um, Nick and Jennifer Anderson. I just pray for um, them as uh, Jennifer, Jennifer is uh, not doing well uh, and uh, being treated uh, this evening in the hospital. So give wisdom to them and uh, the doctors, and we just pray for her body uh, physically. So we love them and just are thankful that they're part of our fellowship and just pray your blessing and encouragement upon them. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know a lot about the situation. <coughs> Excuse me. I know that she's uh, having some problems, and so just remember Nick and Jennifer, uh, if you would, uh, in your prayers. Tonight I want you to take your Bible and open to the New Testament, open to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, I want to start turning our attention towards uh, Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ, the greatest act of condescending love the world has ever seen as the Lord of glory leaves heaven, leaves the courts of heaven, he comes into this earth, into this world born of a virgin, he puts on our humanity so uh, that he might be treated scornfully and rejected by a sinful world, despised, scoffed at. Uh, painful, shameful, ignominious death that he might stand in our place and take our punishment. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly offers himself as the ransom for the sins of his people, something that really should occupy our hearts and minds, not just at this time of the year, but always, uh, every time of the year, all throughout the year. Uh, Again, the Lord of glory would stoop down and come so low for our sake to deliver us from our sin and misery because of our rebellion against God. So the portion of scripture we're going to work our way through is one of my favorites. Um, I, I love this portion of scripture. Uh, I return to, or have returned to it often during uh, uh, this time of year because I think it's just such a rich text. Uh, it speaks to the tender mercy of our God. And I love that way that Luke writes that down, the tender mercy of our God. It, it's a portion of scripture that is actually the song, a song of salvation, a hymn of praise, a song of deliverance, uh, because that's one of the great um, expressions the redeemed uh, partake in, have the privilege of partaking in as we lift up our hearts in melody to the Lord for our salvation. And what we're going to see in this text that we're going to look at is it's one of five great tributes of praise that are recorded in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. You have the praise of Elizabeth in chapter 1, verses 41 to 45. You have Mary's anthem of praise, or sometimes it's known as Mary's Magnificat. It's 46 through 55 of Luke chapter 1. You have Zechariah's song of praise in uh, 67 through the end of the chapter and then you have the anthems don't forget that you have the anthems announced at the birth of christ by the the angels and then you have finally the praise of simeon in chapter two and and, uh, although her words are not recorded the prophetess uh, and as it says in luke uh, 2 verse 36 she who never leaves the temple uh, she served there day and night with fasting and prayers and giving thanks uh, to the infant or to god for the infant uh, lord jesus so it's just a tremendous opening of Luke's gospel, praising God. Uh, praise just fills the first two chapters. 
uh, of this uh, uh, wonderful gospel, uh, again, expressing uh, thankfulness for God's kindness, his tender mercy uh, to us through our great Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the text that we're going to look at this morning is just uh, full of, uh, or this evening is full of praise. I I want you to uh, turn in Luke 1 to uh, verse 67. That's kind of where we're going to pick it up. Um, it's a song of praise that's deeply rooted in uh, um, the Old Testament, especially focusing on three great covenants found in the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the New Covenant. And all, all three of those uh, covenants deal with the issue of salvation. All of those covenants deal with the blessings that come by way of salvation. Uh, everyone who's saved partakes in the Davidic covenant, and no one can enjoy the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant apart from salvation, and no one can enter into the blessing of the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant apart from experience forgiveness of sin, which is found in the New Covenant. So the text uh, before us is deep. Uh, it's theologically uh, rich. Um, uh, there's much material here. Uh, it, it's a major bridge, really, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And again, it just overflows with outbursts of praise on the part of Zacharias. In, in response to the outstanding events that he's part of in his life and the birth of the son, as he sees in the birth of his son, God fulfilling his word, God fulfilling his promises, which is another reason I love this portion of scripture, because it points us not only to Christ, but it points us to the faithfulness of God. It points us to the reality that once God speaks, <clears throat> he keeps his word. Once he speaks, he keeps his word, <clears throat> excuse me, it's what, which is just a tremendous encouragement to all of us. So really the Holy Spirit directs the pen of Luke to begin to tell the story of the birth of Christ. Again, connecting it to the Old Testament, I think he wants to show that uh, Christianity is not something new on the scene. It's not some kind of new religious system. It's really something old. It fulfills what God has promised that he would do through uh, the sending of Messiah uh, many uh, years in the past. Uh, the chapter is very long. Uh, we won't be able to go through all of the chapter. Uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time like starting in uh, verse 67 and working our way towards the end. But we'll go back and pick up little pieces here and then again it's just a fascinating tremendously encouraging portion of scripture that points to the love of god and his faithfulness to us it's a portion of scripture that is starting in verse 67 is sometimes known as zachariah's song of salvation or zachariah's song of praise so if you're looking for a title that's might what you want to put on it zachariah's song of praise sometimes it's known as zachariah's benedictus that's the latin word benedict benedictus we get blessed so it's really a song of thanksgiving and praise so verse 67 is where i want to dig in and start just kind of reading through and then working our way through it it's a zachariah's response to the birth of his son who's john the baptist and then it's the ramifications of that event in redemptive history so there's a lot to get through we're not going to get through all of it tonight so tonight really is just going to be an introduction to this text luke 1 verse 67 his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. In verse 80 says, the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, as I read the text and we work our way through the, the story, I really want you to try the best you can to put yourself in the middle of the story because they're real events, real events happening to real people with real emotions uh, as part of the real response and the story that they're a part of. And, and again, the text is written by Luke. Luke's a traveling companion, as you know, Paul. He's a faithful man. He's a physician, a historian, a theologian, and he's called by God to write this text. Zacharias is the main character in the text. He's a priest. He's an old man, just a a common man. He's probably in his 70s, maybe uh, even into his 80s. Obviously a godly man, a man of faith, one who has a tremendous understanding of the Old Testament, and one who is waiting, looking forward with eagerness to the redemption of Israel, waiting for the Messiah to come. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth, and she's barren, uh, 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 unable to have children. And throughout their entire married life, they've been deprived of children. And in the Jewish world, uh, especially, uh, the idea of children was seen as a blessing from the Lord. So now you have a, a priest who's not blessed of God. That's really the way the culture would have seen him. That, that's the way the people around him would have seen the situation. So both of them probably spent a great majority of their life uh, um, trying to explain why they didn't have children. You know, what's wrong with you? And it would have been difficult for them to have lived in the public eyes, uh, uh, Zechariah being a priest, one who represents God, and then to be in the category that everybody would have thought of uh, of being unblessed. So I think before you even get into the story, kind of as a side story, but a, a principle that's drawn out of it, I think there's a tremendous um, message of hope here uh, for some people who want to have children and can't have children. Because the story, on, on kind of a secondary level, but ne- nevertheless, the secondary points to the sovereignty of God as the one who opens the womb. And the truth of the situation here that nobody else knows except God he hadn't closed the womb because he was judging these people. He'd actually closed the womb, the womb of Elizabeth in his sovereign goodness because he was going to work a supernatural, miraculous event in their lives down the road really to draw attention to them and to draw attention to the Son. But they don't know that. And that's often the way it is in our lives. We don't understand what God's doing at the moment. We're not called to have that kind of knowledge. And sometimes God lets us know, sometimes he doesn't. What we're called to is to trust God, right? We're to trust God in the midst of the circumstance and we're to lean on his goodness and his sovereignty. When we don't know what we don't know, then we need to rely on what we do know and we need to speak ourselves the truth, not ask questions, why me or why is this happening? But we need to speak ourselves the truth that we already know that God has revealed to us in his word. Right? So we need to keep God's goodness, his sovereignty, always in the forefront of our lives and in every situation of our life. And again, what's going to happen in this story is God's going to intercede and they're going to miraculously conceive because God has a plan greater than they can understand. Now, what you have to understand in the context to the story is God's been silent for 400 years. There hasn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years, and there hasn't been anything on the miraculous level for about 500 years. So for a very long period of time, God has been silent. Nobody's heard from an angel. Nobody has seen the miraculous. And yet, when Luke starts the story, the narrative of the birth of Christ... He begins with two conception miracles. First, surrounding Elizabeth and Zacharias, and the other one, of course, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. 
So Zacharias is doing what priests do. He's performing his priestly duties in the temple. And just like all orders of priests did, they for two weeks out of the year, they're down in Jerusalem serving in the temple when he's confronted by an angel of the Lord. Look back to chapter, uh, or to, in chapter 1, back all the way, to cha- all, all the way back to verse 5. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they're both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the, the command and all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside uh, uh, at the hour of the incense offering. Verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So the boy that uh, is going to be born to Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias, named John, is none other than John the Baptist. Right? He's the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of the Christ. He is the one who's been long before predicted who would come, uh, just before Messiah, and he would announce the arrival of the Messiah to the world. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. You remember in our study in the book of John, uh, on that day there at the Jordan River, he pointed out Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? And when John comes, uh, the angel says, verse 15 of him, speaking of John, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, speaking of the Messiah. He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so so as to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zacharias, as you can imagine, is going to have a little bit of a difficult time believing this. After all, he's a real man, right? It's a real man, real story, real situation. And it's not every day uh, that angels show up and give you such wonderful, amazing news, right? This is not pretty, it hasn't happened to me. I, I won't ask if it's happened to you lately, but it hasn't happened to me. This is a unique experience on a unique day. Now, Zacharias is so overwhelmed by the news, he really doesn't believe the messenger of God. So Zacharias is going to find himself punished. Uh, he's going to find himself silent for his unbelief. Verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Right? We can't have kids. We've never had kids. We can't. It's beyond, the, it's beyond the pale of possibility. And the angel of the Lord answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to you to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in the proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias, wondering, had his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. It came about in the days that his priestly service were ended, and he went back home. Now the context of the story continues, and it tells us that after these things, Elizabeth, his wife, becomes pregnant, verse 24. 
After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when <clears throat> he uh, looked on with me upon, or looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, six months into her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel arrives, and this time he comes to another woman. This woman is engaged to a man named Joseph, and, of course, the woman is Mary. And Gabriel comes with another announcement of a conception miracle, uh, this time regarding Mary, who's going to be with child, although she's a virgin. She's going to be with child, although she's a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the child is going to be the Messiah. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name, his, you shall name him Jesus. Verse 32, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I am a virgin, and the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, the story goes on in Luke, and it's time for Elizabeth to uh, give birth to John the Baptist. She does that down in verse 57, just like the angel um, said would happen. And, and right up to that time that John was born, uh, Zacharias is still silent. Drop down to verse 63. Verse 63 of chapter 1. And this is just before the baby is born. And Zacharias writes on a tablet that this boy is going to be named John. That's kind of unusual because nobody in the family was named John. They probably thought his name was going to be Zacharias Jr. or little Zacharias or something. No, he said his name is going to be John. And then the text says Zacharias opens his mouth and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak the praise of God. So again, th these are times of great anticipation. These are times of great anticipation at the beginning of the fulfillment that John is born and he's just eight days old. And he is the forerunner. And the Messiah, the Christ, the son of Mary, her child is just, the birth is just a few months away. So, so this is a time of real anticipation. Now again, Zacharias knows that John's the forerunner and he knows that Christ is coming soon. Because he knows that the Messiah, Christ, is in Mary's womb. Mary had spent three months with them in the house, in his house, visiting Elizabeth and himself. And no doubt she must have told him of Gabriel's promise to her. Luke 1, verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Now again, remember, Zacharias is a priest in Israel. And as a priest, he would have great concern for God and great concern for God's people. He was an intermediary. He would stand in the gap, as it were, between people and God, he wanted to bring men the truth, the hope that they could have their sin atoned for by way of his sacrifice. So he has a tremendous care about the issue of salvation, tremendous care about the glory of God, tremendous care about the salvation of his brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel. 
So his heart was always looking forward. His heart was always full, full uh, of a hope of, of redemption. And now, again, the forerunner of the Messiah has arrived. That's his son. And this is, this is not only a high point of redemptive history. This is really moving towards the greatest event of all of human history. That would be uh, the coming of Christ, right? You ask men what do you think the greatest event in human history is and probably get a variety of different answers from wars to kings to monarchs or whatever. Probably could never come to a, a, a consensus on uh, what people might think the greatest event in human history is. But this is the greatest event in human history. And, and we need to think about that, right? We were talking about this in the men's ministry a couple of weeks ago about getting a perspective, right? When you think in your mind's eye, the world... Being Americans, what's the first map that appears on your brain? United States, Texas is here, Florida's here, New York's there, California, right? Okay, that's an American way of thinking. To have a biblical mind, when you think about the world, the first map that should come to your brain is Israel. Because Israel's the issue. Israel's the promised land. Israel is the, is the place where the Messiah was born. Israel was the place in that little tiny strip of land, just real, real narrow and not very long. That's where the, the truth of the gospel went because that was where all the trade routes went, north and south. People didn't go out in the desert and you couldn't go out in the ocean. So everybody's going north and south and the message is going throughout the world. You, talk, you look in the Bible, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but Israel, 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 right? The Messiah's from Israel. The, the nation of Israel has been promised this. There's going to be a, a redeemer who will sit on a throne in Israel and the Messiah is going to come back and rule from Israel. Israel's the issue. So you've got to start getting your perspective correct, right? You've got to start thinking biblically. What's the greatest event of all human history? Now the test is, now you have to write down, right? The greatest event in human history is what? God coming into the world. That's the issue. When God came into the world, when the Redeemer showed up, the greatest event of all human history, we actually mark it by B.C., right? Before Christ and A.D. in the year of the Lord, Anno Dominum, right? That's how we mark time. So again, the single most profound, impactful moment of all human history is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. God coming in the flesh to save. God coming in the flesh to bring salvation. God bringing eternal life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the phrase, because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God. This is the greatest event in human history. So important is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth that the Holy Spirit uses four Holy and Spirit-inspired writers. Four different Holy and Spirit, Holy Spirit-inspired writers to tell uh, the birth of Christ to the world. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The good news, right? They're the gospel writers. The good news of salvation. So again, Luke records the coming of God in the world and the birth of Christ in the first two chapters. First chapter, the events leading up to the birth of Christ. Chapter 2, the actual birth of the Savior. And here in this uh, passage of Scripture we're beginning to look at, I'd have to imagine that Zacharias is probably literally holding his son in his arms, right? That's what you do, right? He's holding his little baby in his arms, and he's filled with joy, and he begins to speak forth the word of God because he knows that his son is miraculously conceived. They are too old to have children. The son is miraculously conceived. His own son, John, now born, he is the forerunner of the Messiah. Therefore, because the forerunner has shown up in the human history the Messiah is not very far behind. The long-awaited Savior, all, for, all, the way from the back, all the way back from the book of Genesis forward, he's now about to step onto the pages of human history. He even now is being formed in Mary's womb. So again, picking it up in verse 67, Zacharias breaks forth in spontaneous praise because 
uh, he understands what's going on. The spontaneous praise comes out of the Old Testament uh, again, and it's going to come in three parts, three ways, if you want to look at it that way. As he starts to wrap his mind about around all the things that are happening, everything he's been told, the truth that he knows holding on to, and the truth that he's been told about this child and the reality that that child is here, everything he knows about the Old Testament. And he knows that God is about to fulfill three great Old Testament covenants. The Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the New Covenant. These covenants are about to come to fruition. Again, verse 67, Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So, so confident is uh, Zacharias in what God says. He anticipates the reality, though, although technically it hasn't, technically hasn't taken place, but God has accomplished redemption of his people. And the word redemption means to rescue at a high cost. So there's going to be a high cost to be paid to redeem God's people. And again, it's a synonym for salvation, which he immediately makes reference to. Verse 69, And he has raised up, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers, to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So again, Zacharias knows the child is miraculously conceived. Zacharias knows that his son John is the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who's going to announce the coming of the long-awaited Redeemer and Savior. Therefore, he knows this is a monumental moment in history, a monumental occasion. Again, the birth of the forerunner has occurred. The long-awaited birth of the Messiah is about to take place. He understands that. And again, he understands everything that's happening is to fulfill God. It's a result of God's actions, a result of God's activities to fulfill God's word. God has made promises that he's going to keep by way of covenant, promises that he's made to David, promises that he's made to Abraham, and he, who he mentions, and whom he will fulfill those promises. And again, Zacharias knows that when Messiah comes... All the promises that God has made to David, to Abraham, is going to be accomplished. So again, it's important for us to at least have an understanding of that. Now, there's a lot of material here. Uh, we won't be able to go into the depth that we would like to go into, or at least I'd like to go into it, because it would take us a few times more than I think we should have available to take, but we'll go into it to some depth. But again, Zacharias knows. He understands it's a monumental moment in history. Uh, He understands uh, what's unfolding right before his eyes. That's why, again, he links it to three specific Old Testament covenants, the Davidic, the Abrahamic, and then the New Covenant, as it's called in Jeremiah 31. Now, God promised to the nation of Israel they'd have a king and a kingdom that that would come from David's line. And God promised Abraham that a people would come from him, and that's the Jewish people, that someday they would be the inheritors, they'd possess the promised land. They possessed the promised land. It would be a time of immense blessing, a time when they would serve the Lord, a time when they would be a blessing to the world. And then God promises through the new covenant when Messiah comes that he will give his people a knowledge of salvation that comes by way of forgiveness of sin. Now, up to this point, none of this has happened. But there's, a great, again, a great national anticipation for the Messiah to come, for the Deliverer to come, to deliver them from their enemies, to bring the fulfillment of the Davidic and the Abrahamic promises. And the Holy Spirit, again, who's directing the pen of of Luke and directing Zacharias in his speech, records this here. So the Holy Spirit's directing the whole thing. The Holy Spirit's directing it, Luke's recording it, 
and God's bringing forth the fulfillment of the story of salvation. So again, it's a major event. And Luke wants us to, again, understand that the coming of the forerunner, John the Baptist, is linked with the coming of the Messiah, inaugurating, again, the beginning of the fulfillment of all these promises that God made in the Old Testament. Again, those promises found in the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. So again, Luke's telling us that this is not something new on the scene. It's not some aberration. It's not something new. It's not some Judaistic heresy or perversion of truth. No, it's actually something old. The promise of the coming of the Messiah, the promise of the fulfillment of the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now again, as you read the Old Testament, you read and understand that God is a covenant-keeping God. He, a covenant is an agreement that God makes with men. Sometimes the promises were unilateral, meaning that God alone makes them. And he's going to fulfill them based on his own character and his nature because he's faithful to his promises. Sometimes they're bilateral covenants. God will do this if man does that. In the Old Testament, there are six covenants, basically six specific Old Testament covenants. The first covenant, obviously, the one that God made with Noah, that he would never again destroy the world by water. God sets the rainbow in the sky as a symbol of, uh, that promises irrevocable. In the end, when the earth is destroyed, it won't be by having too big of a carbon footprint. It will not be because car, cows flatulate. It will not be because we had not gone green enough and we don't have enough electrical cars. No, when the world comes to an end, it'll come to an end because it's God's doing. Yeah, all, all of this is idolatry. All of this is a flat rejection of God's truth. When you start killing cows to save the planet, you are going to start killing people because people like to eat cows. And if you have no food, you might starve to death. So worrying about saving the planet, you might want to worry about saving people. But we don't want to do that because we're satanic, run by satanic rulers, satanic thinking. And, and if, they, if we can't kill them in the womb, then we'll kill them when they get out. We'll starve them to death. I don't know if John's in the room, but John's always bringing us information on, a, on an agricultural level about what's going on around the world. And it's not good, let me tell you. You can stock up and put a little bit of extra in your cupboard, which might be a good, good idea, but you're probably not going to be able to, uh, to uh, hang out to the end. Right? It's going to have to be God providing for our needs because the world's gone crazy. They're, they're killing off the food supply. They're killing off uh, the ability to plant. And if you can't have, you can't have food, you can't eat. Right? So how do I get on that rabbit trail? I know, as I was saying, the, the men are going to destroy the planet. God is. It belongs to him. Right? Not by water with Noah, but by fire when God's done with it. The next covenant you see in the Old Testament is the covenant that God made with Moses. It's in the book of Exodus, the Mosaic Covenant. God gives his law and promises blessings for obedience, promises a punishment for disobedience. It's an irrevocable promise. It's true, still true today. You obey the law, you'll be blessed. You disobey God's law, you're going to be judged. There's a priestly covenant. It's out of Numbers 25, where God promises to grant his uh, people an irrevocable priesthood. Even in the millennium, there's going to be a priesthood of the, uh, as the prophets predicted. But none of those, uh, the Novaic, uh, Mosaic, or uh, priestly covenant, none of those are salvific. There's nothing inherently salvific in those covenants. Right? There's anything, nothing salvific in Noah's covenant. There's nothing uh, salvific in the Mosaic covenant, right? Because men can't be saved by the law. You know, law only condemns them. And again, there's nothing salvific in the priestly covenant. But there are some covenants that are salvific. The Davidic covenant. 
the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant all have components connected to the issue of salvation. But the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant can't come to pass until there's salvation. And the new covenant, which is the covenant of salvation, when it affects all the rest, you can't receive the benefits of that or the Abraham, benefits of the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant until you receive the benefits of the new covenant until you receive salvation. So again, this is a major link between the Old Testament and New Testament. And all of that to say, just really kind of by way of background, Luke is uh, indicating, again, God's stepping into time, God's interfering. Gabriel comes and announces the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, then he announces the birth of the Messiah, both conception miracles, uh, the older lady Elizabeth, along with the miracle of the virgin birth, uh, uh, the conception of Mary. Again, God's interceding, God's interfering, as the great redemptive plan of salvation conceived in the mind of God from eternity past is now about to be fulfilled and inaugurated in time. So I say that it's all important that we need to understand that because I guarantee you Zacharias did. He starts seeing all the pieces, right? He's an Old Testament scholar. He starts seeing all the pieces coming together. And that's why he starts to sing. That's why he breaks out in a, a redemption praise song because he gets it. He, he can understand what's going on, what he's a part of in this most monumental event. Now, for nine months, Zacharias has been unable to speak and probably unable to hear. But then all of a sudden, his mouth is loose, and he starts just gushing forth praise, unmixed praise. Verse 67 again. His father Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Uh, again, God's been silent for 400 years. In the last book of the Old Testament, last chapter, Malachi 4, verse 2, a promise is made. You who fear my name, uh, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. Now, the Son of Righteousness is promised. There's 400 years of silence. Um, the, the Son of Righteousness is, is the Messiah, but he hasn't come. 400 years of promise, silence, no Messiah, no Savior, no Redeemer. All they got during that period of time was just more bondage. Terrible bondage under the Greeks, terrible bondage under the Romans. Prison for 400 years, 400 years of being hated. Again, no deliverer, no salvation. But now, guess what? He's come. He's coming, right? My son has just been born. My son is the forerunner. My son is the one who's going to point the way to the Messiah, and he knows that the Messiah is now being formed in Elizabeth's womb, or in Mary's womb. Right? He knows that the Messiah is being formed in, Elizabeth, in uh, Mary's womb. He knows that. He knows the Savior is on the scene. Blessed be, again, verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I'll have to stop right there, just as a point of hermeneutics, um, but that the Bible calls the God of Israel, or the Bible calls God the God of Israel more than 200 times. 2,000 references in the scripture to Israel. And all, with all graciousness, not a single one of them means anything other than Israel. Ethnic Israel, Jewish people. When the Old Testament talks about Israel, it's talking about ethnic Israel. When the New Testament talks about the church, it's talking about the church, a specific, unique entity that came into existence on the day of Pentecost, made up of redeemed men and women from all different tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations, both Jew and Gentile. So there's a distinction biblically between Israel and the church, a functional difference, just like there's a functional difference between men and women. Not an ontological difference or a salvific difference, 
meaning there's not one way to be saved for Israel and another way to be saved for the church. That's not true. Everybody's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. But if you say the promise of the Old Testament that refer, that refer to Israel actually mean that they are referring to the church, you have no precedent biblically for that kind of an interpretation. Again, there's not one reference in the scripture, and there are over 2,000 referring to the nation of Israel that means any other thing than Israel. 73 references in the New Testament, each of them referring to Israel mean Israel. You get Israel right, you get a lot of the, God's word right. You let God speak for himself, who knows how to speak and knows how to communicate. Helps. Helps tremendously. Helps a tremendous understanding of understanding both the Old Testament and the New Testament, then a great understanding of how things turn out in the end, in the eschatologically. If you read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, you replace Israel with the church, that's an error. Some people call it replacement theology, some people call it supersessionism. That's not what the Bible teaches. We read the Bible from left to right. We don't read back into the New Testament, take the New Testament and read it as a lens back into the Old Testament. We read it historically, and it means exactly what it meant to the people who were going through the, the situations in the era in which they lived. It means exactly what God meant for them to understand. So Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He understands Israel. He, he's an Old Testament Jew. He understands it. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And that's just a common way of introducing praise in the Old Testament. Zechariah, again, views God's plan of redemption as unfolding first to Israel. Look what he says. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is what God has done, the Lord God of Israel. Now, again, long ago, God promised that he would send uh, uh, salvation to his people to free them from their slavery from sin, to sleep, uh, save them from the curse of the law and from all false religious systems, and then from Satan, who wielded the power of death. So again, redemption had long been promised and hoped for. But the new covenant had not yet been ratified or secured. Again, the Messiah's forerunner is only eight days old, and the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, at the time, it has not even been born yet. But Zechariah, again, is so confident in the word of God that God is going to do exactly as he promised. He knows that the birth of his son is the signal that God, again, is about to visit his people, and he's about to bring that provision that he has promised that makes salvation possible. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us, accomplished redemption for his people. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Right? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, the idea behind that phrase, a horn of salvation, is a common Old Testament picture of power. Power to conquer, power to kill. Horn is the kind of the key word. In the Old Testament, uh, an expression for a powerful person drawn out of the animal kingdom, which uh, the greatest of animals had uh, horns there and able to kill their victims uh, or kill the other, kill victims with by the use of their horns. It's just a picture of power. So that's what, the, that's what people thought when the Messiah would come. When he would come, he would be a powerful one. He'd be a conqueror. He'd be a destroyer of their enemies. He would set them free. He'd be a great deliverer, a great rescuer. And again, you see this raised up a horn of salvation for us. You see that kind of uh, uh, um, phraseology often in the Old Testament. Two Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse uh, 50, verse 34. Jeremiah 50, verse 34. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. Psalm 148, verse 14. He has lifted up a horn for his people. Praise for all of the godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. So Zechariah is excited because the strong one's here. 
the anointed ones here, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Conqueror, the Rescuer. He's been raised up. Again, Zacharias knows this is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He links the horn of salvation to David. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Again, verse 69, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, Zacharias knows, again, the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament scholar. He knows that the Old Testament clearly promised the Messiah would be from the house of David. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land or in the earth, as it says in the King James. Jeremiah 33, verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Psalm 132, verse 17, There I will cause a horn of David to spring forth, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So again, Zacharias would have known that uh, Jesus' Jesus, uh, Jesus's mother, Mary, uh, was from the line of David. Again, most certainly, they stayed together. They lived together for about three months. No doubt she told him Gabriel's promised her. Again, verse 31 out of uh, chapter 1. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall name his name Jesus. I will, he will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father david he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end can have an everlasting eternal kingdom verse 70 it says as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us now again there are many prophecies many old testament prophecies many promises that have been made to david and his household the estimate is about 40 different passages of scripture that directly relate to these verses isaiah had a lot to say about the future davidic uh, kingdom the future davidic rule uh, ruled by the messiah that the lord will restore the faithful remnant to the land he'll inhabit the kingdom without fear of israel's enemies he'll provide for and protect protect his people israel is going to enjoy great prosperity and, and freedom from from their enemies the city of jerusalem is going to be raised up to worldwide prominence israel is going to be the center of the world's attention and her mission and this time is going to be to glorify god and then when the prince of peace comes and he sits and rules over the uh, uh, over the house of Jacob and the house of David forever, there's going to be worldwide peace because the Prince of Peace has shown up. Righteousness is going to prevail in his kingdom. His kingdom is going to swiftly uh, judge any kind of overt sin. And the knowledge of God is going to be universal, etc. and so forth. So when David was old, he wanted to build a house for God. But instead of building a house for God, God says, Look, I'm going to build you a house. Am, am I keeping you? Are you all right? Put, put, put a mark there real quick and, and go back to, to uh, uh, 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 7. Uh, verse 5. David's old. He wants to build a house for God. 2 Samuel 7, verse 5, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build a house, build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in the tent, even the tabernacle, wherever I have gone, all the sons of Israel. Did I speak a, a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded the shepherds of my people, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? 
Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from the following of the sheep, that you would be the ruler of my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, David wanted to build a house to honor the Lord, right? But God says, look, I'm going to build you a house. He's not talking about a building. House in the terms of dynasty. Now, I'm, going to, I'm going to build a dynasty in you. Now, like many of the prophecies in the, in the Old Testament, the Lord makes a promise to David here through Samuel. And there's specific uh, reference to the Davidic covenant. It's going to have both a near and a distant fulfillment. Look at verse 12. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up for your descendants after you. I'll raise up for your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish my kingdom. Now, if you read it on in verses 13, 14, 15, God's speaking about David's near son, Solomon. Solomon's going to build a kingdom. He's going to be, build a temple. But, of course, we know it doesn't last. Solomon, as he grows older, becomes deeper and deeper into sin or sinks deeper and deeper into sin. And as a result of uh, his uh, disobedience, the death, uh, Solomon's death, the kingdom divides into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel. You have the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and eventually, after the centuries of rebellion against God, God's going to bring judgment. He's going to disturb both of them. I understand that. Israel is destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. Then a little more than a century later, uh, Judah is going to be destroyed and taken off in captivity by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. But look what God says here in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So God's making a promise to send a ruler who's going to reign in righteousness and he's going to deliver the world. He's going to be a ruler over the whole world forever. It's not Solomon. It's a distant fulfillment. Now, you don't find the word covenant here in the text, but you find it over in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Just write that down, 2 Samuel 23, 5. Speaking of this event, these are the last words of David. David says, truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me. God's made an everlasting covenant with David, a covenant, an irrevocable pledge that he's going to raise up a son. Someone's going to come in the future out of the loins of David, out of the line of David, who's going to establish or have an eternal kingdom. Who's that? It's the Messiah. Right? It's the Messiah. It's the one from David who will come in the future, one of David's future sons, who will come and establish his kingdom. A universal, everlasting kingdom. Again, it's the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We're familiar with it. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace in the throne of David. And on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So again, Isaiah is saying, look, there's somebody coming. Somebody coming from David. He's the Messiah. And he's going to be the ruler universally everywhere. He's going to be born. He's going to be a man. He'll be born, obviously, as a man. He's going to be a child. He's a son given. 
A son given speaks of his pre-existence, his eternality. He's going to be a universal ruler. He's the mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. His kingdom will have no end. It'll have no bounds. And David, in the Davidic covenant, says the son of David is going to come, the Messiah. He's the one who will establish this universal kingdom. He'll be a powerful king, a powerful ruler. And he's going to reign in time, not just in eternity. He's going to reign in time. He's going to reign in time over people, over the world from Jerusalem. And God's people, Israel, finally are going to have rest from their enemies. Right? Because one of the promises that God made is there's going to be a rest for God's people. That hasn't happened. Last time I checked, last time I looked at the news, still got all kinds of problems going on in Israel. They never have rest. Just as last week, twice, the United Nations condemned Israel for being in existence. Right? They, 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 they passed some kind of resolution saying that uh, it was a mistake for them to become into existence, and they passed another resolution, uh, the entire world, save about five different countries, saying we should condemn them. For what? We should condemn them, right? They should give up all their nuclear arms. Israel's the center of, of the universe, the center of redemption or the issues that are going on here in the world, not the United States, Israel. No peace there. And again, most of the nation of Israel missed the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is the one. He was the long-awaited one, still is the long-awaited one, uh, from, comes from the line of David, who will again rule over in time a physical kingdom during the millennium. But now Israel, again, still facing hostility, still facing hatred, though all the nations surround them. They're still awaiting this coming kingdom that God promised. So where is the promise of, back in John, salvation from our enemies at the hand of those who hate us? Right? Where, where is that? It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, the Jewish people, that hasn't happened because of Israel and their disobedience. Now, I don't know that Zechariah saw what would happen, but I, perhaps he didn't, uh, didn't see the unthinkable would happen. That Israel would actually not only reject the Messiah, they'd kill him, but they did. So again, Zechariah, this Old Testament priest, saying here, in the context of the story, the forerunner has arrived, the rescue is here, the deliverer is here, redemption is near, hope has arrived. It's about to happen. Everything's about to unfold right in front of us exactly as God said he's going to establish his kingdom. But again, nobody on a personal level, nobody on a national level is going to be able to enjoy the blessings, the benefits of the Davidic kingdom unless they accept the terms of the new covenant. They can't accept the benefits of the Davidic covenant. They can't accept the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant until they agree to the terms of the new covenant, which speaks of personal repentance and forgiveness of sin. And again, we know historically they didn't do that. The nation of Israel beheaded John the Baptist and they crucified Christ at the hands of the Romans. And again, for the most part, the nation of Israel has not received the Messiah and they can't receive the Davidic promises. They can't fulfill the receive the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenants until the terms of the new covenant are met. Now, Israel is disobedient. We know that. But disobedience of Israel doesn't nullify the promises of God because all the promises God has made to the nation of Israel are going to come to pass. Because, again, God has made unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable promises to his people, and his divine faithfulness demands that his promises are going to be fulfilled. That's why Paul asks in Romans 11, has God rejected his people? And his answer is, by no means. That's when he launches off and says, I'm in Israel, myself a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he has foreknown. Has God rejected his people? And Paul says very directly, the word is a 
meganoito, by no means. It's the strongest negation in the Greek. It means absolutely no, absolutely not. Again, the strongest form of negation in the Greek would be the equivalent of us saying no, 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 no. You know, I mean, just no. Absolutely not. God's not God's not rejected his people. Now, that would probably be enough that disobedience of Israel is not going to nullify the promises of God. But just in case you wanted a little bit more, 1 Samuel 12, verse 22, the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Isaiah 89, verse 31, if they violate my statutes and not keep my commandments, then I'll visit their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with strife. But I will not break off my loving kindness or my grace in from them or deal falsely with my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have spoken with my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. And it shall be established forever, like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Maybe God has changed his mind. Jeremiah 31, verse 35, thus says the Lord God, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can above, um, uh, above can be uh, measured and the foundation of the earth search out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done declares the Lord. Last time I looked, I think I saw the sun today. I think the moon's still up there. What we need to understand is Israel's disobedience is never going to nullify God's promises. Everything God promised to the nation of Israel is going to come to pass. One day the king, their king, the king of all kings is going to come back. He's going to return. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom. He's going to reign from the throne of David. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice, next three words, in the earth. And I would suggest to you that in the earth means in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and all Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. Just as God promised David, Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for the only son and will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Zechariah 14, verse 4, In that day his feet, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other towards the south. Now, as far as I understand, none of that happened when Jesus came the first time, which means what? He's coming back again, and that's going to happen exactly like God said. Obviously, the most detailed description of the second coming of Christ to judge his enemies, to establish his earthly kingdom, comes in the book of the Revelation, Revelation 19, Verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and Righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and white clean are following him. 
on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the, white, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and so on. Came the first time, he's coming back a second time. The word of God demands it, and the promises that he made to, to David demand it. So Zacharias is saying, look, I get it. I see what's happening here. All this is happening exactly as God had said. All of this is going to be fulfilled. Go back to uh, our, our look here in the book of Luke. All of it's going to happen. All of it's planned. All of it's going to come to fruition because God is a covenant-keeping God. Zechariah understands that. God's bringing this to pass in his presence as he holds that baby in his arms. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy, verse 72, towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. So Zacharias is praying God because he understands the Savior is coming. He understands that God's going to fulfill his promises and he is rejoicing because mercy is on the way to show mercy towards our fathers. Who's our fathers in the context? Israel, right? In the context, Israel. In the Davidic covenant, which is uh, universal in scope, uh, there's also promises made to uh, uh, the nation and to the nations in the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, there's uh, uh, um, national promises of blessing first and foremost to the nation of Israel. Davidic covenant, universal rule, universal ruler. Davidic or Abrahamic covenant promises to the nation of Israel. Again, the promises that are made to the nation of Israel uh, of mercy and blessing extend to others who uh, come by faith as Abraham did, to Christ by faith. So he starts bringing up the Abrahamic covenant. And the promises that God made to Abraham was that he'd be blessed in a blessing. He would have a great name. He would have a seed that would make him the father of many nations. Uh, and uh, his descendants would have an everlasting possession of the land of Canaan. Now, again, you know the story. Abram, as he was originally known, exalted father. God changes his name to Abraham, the father of the multitude, father of many nations. And from this man, Abraham comes the Jewish people. Not only from Abram comes the Jewish people, but also comes the Arab people. Right? Sarah dis- despairing, not having a child, his wife. She takes Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, gives him to her husband, Abram, and a child is born from that union, comes Ishmael. And Ishmael's the ancestor, the father of all the Arab people. But God has made a covenant to bless, not through Ishmael, but God has made a covenant to bless through Isaac. Again, another conception miracle between Abram and his wife, Sarah. Sarah's 80 years old or so, 90 years old. She miraculously conceives a son, Isaac. And again, it's through Isaac whom God is going to establish a covenant. Uh, again, God sovereignly calls Abram. He's, going to, he's still living in Ur of the Chaldees. God commands him to leave, come out of his country, leave his relatives, go to the land that I will show you, Genesis 12. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God ratifies the covenant again in uh, chapter 15, again, verse se- uh, chapter 17 of Genesis. It's the most significant of the old, uh, old, uh, uh, covenant, Old Testament covenants. It's reiterated uh, eight times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 22, 26, 28, 35. It's a covenant that God makes with Abraham through blood. Right? Signifies it's a pretty serious situation. When a covenant was made, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, and uh, the two people would walk through that uh, halves of those animals, signifying that the uh, covenant was such a serious promise that if any one of the parties failed to keep the promise that they agreed to at that cutting of that covenant, that that be done. What's happened to those animals would be done to them if they break the, the covenant. It's interesting, in Genesis 15, God puts uh, Abram to sleep uh, with divine anesthesia, if you will, and God comes like a smoking, burning lamp, and he alone passes through the pieces. So the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable. God is making a pledge to Abraham, himself pledging to Abraham. It's not dependent on Abraham or his descendants whatsoever. It's just something that God's going to do. He ratifies it with blood. Just like when the new covenant comes, it's going to be ratified with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an everlasting covenant also. Now, the Abrahamic covenant hasn't been fulfilled in full yet, but it will be one day because the promise was land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing to the world. The covenant is not be fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant won't be fulfilled in full until the Messiah comes a second time. But again, it can't happen until the nation is delivered from their enemies to show mercy towards our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our fathers, verse 74, to grant that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So part of the Abrahamic covenant is a promise of blessing, peace, prosperity, lack of assault, no fear of attack, a time of holiness, a time of righteousness, uh, when the nation will come and be a blessing to all the other nations in a land that God will give them. And in that day, the promise says they'll be delivered. In that day, they'll serve the Lord without fear. In that day, they will, because the Lord will rule the earth, it will be a day of holiness, a day of righteousness, which they'll be protected by him. And guess what? That hasn't happened either. It hasn't happened either. But it has to. Why? Because God promised he's going to do so. So again, all of this, I'm telling you, is swirling through this guy's mind. All of these blessings are going to start to show up when Messiah comes. Deliverance from, the, from our enemies, blessings by God, blessings to the entire world, holiness, righteousness. That's what the Messiah is going to bring. All of this hope, all of this joy is literally overflowing in his heart. He's holding in his son, in his arms, his son, the forerunner of the Messiah. He knows it's all about to be unleashed. But there's more. And in verse 76, he's going to start to talk about the new covenant. It's the only real covenant of salvation. It promises forgiveness of sin in a new heart. It's found back in the book of Ezekiel, found in the book of Jeremiah, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. 
verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on the high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. Again, the Davidic covenant is a global, it's a universal rule by a universal ruler, the Messiah, ruling from in time from Jerusalem over the whole world. The Abrahamic covenant, national, begins with the nation of Israel. Again, Zacharias now starts to turn his attention to the new covenant. It's a personal work of God and the forgiveness of sin. And again, it only happens, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. It only happens because of God's tender mercy, and it only happens when the sunrise on high shall visit us. And again, the sunrise on high is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who comes into the world as a sacrifice. He is the one who is born to die. He's the one who's come into the world to be our substitute, to pay the penalty for our sin. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. And because of the tender mercy of our God, salvation is coming. And Zacharias realizes all that. That little child that he's holding in his arms, he is the messenger of the Messiah. He is the messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. His son is the fulfillment of the promises made in the book of Malachi, that the forerunner would announce the arrival of the Messiah, one who would come and be like Elijah. So all of that is running through his heart. He looks into the face of that little eight-day-old baby boy, and he realizes here's one who's going to cry out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 43, verse 3 of that book. But the message that this young child is going to preach as he grows up is a man in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It's not going to be a very popular message. It's going to be a message of repentance. Because nobody's ever going to be able to enter into the blessings of either the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, unless their sins are dealt with. No one is going to enter into the blessings of God until there's forgiveness of sin by way of repentance. And that's what the new covenant is going to speak about. Forgiveness of sin, all because of the tender mercy of our God, all because of God's grace. It was a relentless message that John preached. I think he only had one sermon. Same thing. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Turn from your sin. Judgment's coming. He was so faithful to the message of repentance, he even questioned the legitimacy of some people who claimed to repent. He, he actually demanded that they would bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Show me, right? Probably from Missouri at some point. So faithful to that one message, just preaching that one sermon. So bold, so confrontational, that men must admit their sin, turn from that sin. So convicting was his preaching, eventually one day they're going to cut off the head of this little baby. Because the world doesn't like to hear that message. The world doesn't want to be told that they're sinners in need of a Savior, in need of repentance. That's the only way to get to the Savior. The nation of Israel didn't like that message, just like men today don't like that message. The nation of Israel didn't think they needed a Savior, just like the men today don't think they need a Savior. But the kingdom of God is not going to be filled with unrepentant sinners. So the new covenant is needed. And the new covenant can't be ratified until the Messiah comes, but the fact is that Messiah, where we stand today, has what? Come. Is today the 11th? I'm a, not a big math guy, but I think we're two weeks away from the day we celebrated the birth of Christ, correct? He's come.
His arrival is reality. Listen, the fact that we celebrate Christmas speaks to the reality that God keeps his word to the smallest detail. Everything he says he's going to do, he does. And again, the coming of the Messiah speaks that all of God's promises connected to the fulfillment of these three covenants, the Davidic, the Abrahamic, and the New Covenant, promises made again a thousand years or so when uh, um, previous to when um, Zacharias is talking, two, three thousand years from our perspective, they're going to be fulfilled. Because God keeps his word. And again, Christmas speaks of God keeping his word. Christmas speaks of our fallenness. It speaks of our hopelessness. It speaks of our lack of ability to do anything to save ourselves from the problem of our sin. But look again, because I think this is the point here. Christmas speaks to the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. We all need to be taken out of darkness, right? We all need to be taken out of the realm of the shadow of death and the way of peace to the Prince of Peace, the one whom God sends in the world, his only begotten beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one born in the world to die, the one born into the world to bear our sin, to suffer in our place, to be our substitute because of the tender mercy of our God. Salvation is found nowhere else, in no one else. We all need a substitute. The tender mercy of our God's on display. Zacharias gets it. Zacharias gets all these covenants are about to be fulfilled. Now, I know that's a ton of material. I got it. I want you to not be confused, but I do want you to be overwhelmed in the sense that Zacharias was overwhelmed. He sees it. We went through the Davidic covenant. We went through the Abrahamic covenant just kind of in glancing because that's what uh, he refers to. And then he's going to refer to, again, nobody's getting into the kingdom without repentance. And that comes by way of the new covenant. And he's going to address that issue as the, as the proclamation of the glory of God goes on in the text, all right? And I told you tonight it was just an introduction. You're going, whew. There won't be a test. Okay, so you can be, you, just, you should just be encouraged. I know it's overwhelming, but it's just so encouraging because God keeps his word down to the minutest detail. We can hope, we have confidence in him always. And again, Christmas, a valid demonstration, a literal demonstration of his faithfulness and for his eternal love for us in time by sending Christ and Christ willingly come. I don't know if he came on December 25th. Probably not. Shh, don't tell anybody that. doesn't matter. The fact is, he has come. The fact is, he has come the first time, just like he promised, just like the Old Testament promised. And the fact is, he's coming again, just like the Word of God promises. And he will rule, because he is the ruler. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He will rule in time from the throne in Jerusalem, fulfill the Davidic covenant, and he will rule in eternity. I got that part. We've got to let him rule in time because that's what God promised David, that he would have a son who would rule, crush the nations who are in rebellion against him. Last time he was seen in this world, he was seen as a malefactor on a cross. The next time he's seen in this world, go to Revelation 19, I read it, but he's coming on a horse with blood dripping from his robe to conquer the nations who will subject themselves to him because he's the king of kings, 
the Lord of Lords. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for our study in your word. So thankful for these folks, Lord, and their, their just kindness. And uh, just to allow me to, to speak for a long time here this evening. Um, thank you for them. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you for the great day we've had of uh, worship this morning and this evening. Thank you again for the blessing of all these little kids in our congregation. Make we or Help us to be mindful to thank everybody who's a part of that ministry, uh, who love on our children because they want to hide, help our kids hide in your word in our heart because it's your word that transforms and changes us. We love you. We're thankful. Thank you for this great day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.